0: Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. This is the after show for fun for the whole family, created by John Quaintance. Uh, now, John has written on many shows, from joey all the way up to the reboot of will and grace in between there was undateable and whitney and lots of shows we had a really uh great conversation i think just he he started out as an actor as you'll hear and just about how he segued into writing and then john is one of those guys that just i feel like has some really wise things to say uh about writing and a lot of that What he says, I think, can be applied to your life, even if you're not a writer. Uh, I came away kind of very inspired after this talk we had. Um, It's a good one. So uh, first, listen to Fun for the Whole Family, if you haven't, and then come back and listen to my interview with John Quaintance.
1: Hi, I'm Janet Varney, and just like you, I survived high school. And we're not alone. On my podcast, The JV Club, I invite some of my friends to share the highs and lows of their teen years. Like moments with Aisha Tyler... But when you're a kid, the stakes are just pretty low. Go to school, try not to get in trouble, get laid. Jamila Jamil. I watched television probably every waking hour during that time when I was shit-faced on medicine. And Dave Holmes.
0: We talked and talked, and then everybody left.
1: It was just us two, and I was like, I love you. Learn how you too can be a functioning adult after the drama and heartbreak of high school. Every week on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Find it on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a judgment-free show.
0: John, thank you for for taking the time. what sh- What show are you working on? I'm working on a Hulu
2: show called Reboot.
0: Okay, that's uh, Lev- Steve Levitan.
2: Yep, yep. I just started uh, a couple weeks ago, so I'm doing that while waiting to hear if my pilot gets picked up.
0: <laughs> okay, so, so the so the new pilot is shot. The, the no, it's the, just
2: a, a it's a script, and they're oh, doing oh, the, you're waiting. Okay, waiting to see if I get to make a pilot.
0: Okay, Uh oh, that's such a fun time so fun so fun. So much fun all right well fingers crossed for that one as we talk about uh, another one that wasn't so lucky but let's um let's start are you from minnesota am i
1: right is that where you i from? am
0: yep in minneapolis yep minneapolis okay so that's where you grew up did um mm-hmm. did you see Hooskerdoo? did you see the replacements
2: you know i was such an uncool minneapolis kid that i was like re- the husker do was too punk rock for me and the replacements like all I heard was like, they're so cool. Sometimes they don't even show up. And then they show up and then like, he's so drunk that they only get through like three episodes, three songs. And then he spits in the audience. I was like, that couldn't be less interesting to me. And now <laughs> I wish I'd been cooler. But I was really into Prince. So I, get, I mean, that's that was my first concert was Prince. Okay. Like, all right. That's
0: the other way to go in, in, in Minneapolis. So that's yeah, pretty cool too.
2: That whole uh, that whole uh, scene of Prince of the Time and all that. And Andre Simone and all that. That was like, Prince went to my, I think he went to he had like the ladies that would yell at you on the playground when you were like playing kickball and they'd be like, put that down. Like they were the same ladies that were at his, his grade school. So they would talk about Prince and we would hang on every word. And then Jerome, who was like, you know, Morris Day's hype man in Purple Rain, Mm -hmm. he came to tell us, he came to our school one day to like tell us to,
0: say not to drugs and it was like a big deal like Jerome
2: is here it's so cool
0: <laughs> that's that's amazing all right so how do you how do you get into the whole comedy writing thing I got I got into it kind of backwards in that I was um
2: a very serious actor in college I went to Northwestern as a theater major and I came out here and I was trying to get an agent and um I just couldn't really get started I had actually had a manager that came and saw me and was like, I can see you doing comedy. And I was like, I don't really see myself doing comedy. I'm really a dramatic person, you know, and then, um, but eventually I started, I just wasn't getting anywhere. So I started doing things that could get me stage time, you know, which was like sketch and stand up. And that was like the way to get stage time. And they were very writing intensive and people would come see me do stand up. And then every once in a while I would get someone be like, you know, you're a really good writer. And I'd be like, Hey, that's not a very good compliment to give to somebody that was just on stage. But I eventually kind of got the message. And um, I uh, my wife was I was super broke as every non-successful aspiring actor is. And my wife um, got pregnant with our first child and I desperately needed some money. So I wrote a movie that I happened to sell in like May, which is like staffing season. And the fact that I just sold a movie kind of got me a couple of meetings and I got my first TV job kind of right off of that. So that was kind of how I started um, was through luck and and
0: need. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but how do you sell that? How do you just come out of nowhere and sell a movie?
2: Well, the thing <laughs> is so dumb about it is that,
0: by the way, I should, I
2: should say that the movie, and I won't take full blame for it because it was completely rewritten by somebody else. For a while, it was listed as the lowest rated movie of all time on IMDb, like for audience ratings. <laughs> Um, because it was a movie that starred the Duff sisters called Material Girls, um, but that I had originally written as sort of like when Paris and Nikki Hilton were like a thing. and Mm -hmm. There was no, Paris wasn't like Paris Hilton yet, but it was just like those sisters were kind of a New York phenomenon. So I wrote a kind of Legally Blonde style movie about these two sisters. And then the dumbest thing was the reason it sold was I sold it to Madonna's company because they were like, we like that it has the name of one of her songs and then we can have somebody re-record the song. I think that's really the only reason I sold it was because they were like, oh, that's synergistically good for us, that we can re-record Material Girl. Wow, inadvertently brilliant
0: of you to do that. The dumb
2: way I got (laughs) into the business, yeah.
0: And then what was, so was Good Morning Miami?
2: Is that the first TV job? It was. It was Good Morning Miami, and then then off of that other movie that I sold, I happened, like that first year, I was like living in an apartment, I think of the year before I sold that movie. I made like $3,000 or something crazy like that, or $5,000 total, and, the pregnant wife. And then I, I sold a movie, got a job on a TV show and then got another job writing a tween movie called Aquamarine. So I was like, my whole life changed in a month or something. It was crazy. I had bought a house,
0: all that stuff. Oh so. my gosh. That's incredible. Okay. So, so you do, you do Good Morning Miami was one se- two seasons, right? What It was two seasons, but I was only
2: on the second season.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, what was that? So, okay, so you've written a movie, but you you hadn't written had you written any TV scripts at the point that you get on that first show? I had written a sketch comedy pilot
2: that, like, I had done a live show um, with my wife, and then sold a pilot to Fox that never got made that was like a sketch comedy but kind of noises off show that was going to have like a real-time plot backstage that I think they bought as just like strike insurance because there was a strike maybe coming up and it never got filmed. But I think that's what got me into the Guild. But that's... And then I'd done like a couple of little sketch things. I did a sketch show on MTV and I did a little... I did like a couple weeks on punks and like stuff like that. But it was my... I'd never done network TV and I, I was such like a dumb shit. I didn't know anything. Like I came in there like as a staff writer being like... I don't know if I like that, you know, took like the showrunner and almost got fired and I was a total idiot but survived, you know.
0: But you were I mean that so they hired you off of your movie script probably, right? The the a good morning Yeah, I, mean, I had
2: a couple of I had a couple of specs, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, like Max Muchnick, I think he he likes he wanted to have somebody that had like done something a little out of the ordinary. So to have sold a movie, like literally the week before and come and be like, yeah, I just sold a movie. You know? <laughs> I felt like kind of hot shit, but literally, you know, that it would turn out to be such a turd. But, um, at the time, you know, there's no better time for a screenwriter than when you've just sold something and it hasn't gotten made and turned into something terrible yet. You know?
0: Right. And yeah, at that point too, I think TV still had the real inferiority complex where like anyone who had yeah. been in the movies just seemed like, Right. so much better than us and because you know, movies still existed right <laughs> exactly. right right and they were they were guests still maybe a little more culturally relevant at that point but um and yeah. and so, so you did that year so how how was that first show i mean did you did you get a little bit more humble as time went?
2: <laughs> yeah i mean the, it, the most interesting thing to me was just that like you know i was a theater major in college and also like in a fraternity and kind of didn't belong in either place like i didn't I wasn't like a guy that wanted to like go out in the grass and rehearse the scene and do back rub circles, you know, but I also wasn't like fitting in with the frat boy thing. But when I walked into a writer's room, I was like, oh yeah, this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like that meeting other kind of like socially awkward, introverted comedy brained people was like, oh, this is like home, you know, like that was the, that was the best thing about it. It wasn't like a very successful show, but there were a lot of really big time people on there and like they, that taught me a lot. And I think, you know, there's a, I feel like sometimes this is probably just an old person thing, but I feel like it's less true now that young writers want to look at it as, as like a craft that's really valuable to learn. But, but when I got in, the people who were older had been doing it, you know, since like the heyday, because the 2003s when I started, it was kind of like right when sitcoms were kind of going downhill a little bit but like the people that were teaching me were like from that golden age and people who had worked on you know friends and mad about you and all that kind of stuff and so like learning that as a craft and as a you know it's like how instagram and twitter i think the things that are good about them are the limitations and a multicam sitcom is the most you know as you know like yeah. there's so many rules and you have so many things to do in 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 38 pages or whatever, and tell three stories that, like, it's the best way to learn how to write. I think, you know, I think it's there's no better, and I think it's kind of a dying thing. I think now this sort of like, oh, there's no rules and there's have to be punchlines, and that's cool for a lot of reasons. But I think just learning the carpentry
0: of sitcoms was great, and also doing 22 episodes a season. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's crazy.
0: So, and speaking of crazy, then you go on to Joey. Uh, yeah, were you, was, yeah, were, that, you just, were you there? Just were you there the first or the second season, or both? both. You were there both. Okay, um, so that you know, with my former uh, compatriots at friends with Scott yeah. Silveri and Shauna Goldberg, me and so that show was kind of uh, legendary for its horrible hours. And yeah. uh, what we're, what are your memories of Joey?
2: I mean, I think that you guys had sort of established that, like we're the America's favorite show and we worked till one. So when we were not succeeding, it was like, well, then we better work till five because we can't work less hours than the show that everybody loved. So, but I mean, I, my, my first memory was walking in there being so intimidated because everybody on that show until a little later, they brought in, um, John Pollock. But when I got there, I was the only writer that wasn't from Harvard or friends or both. So (laughs) I was very intimidated. And I remember feeling like, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this. And, you know, Scott and Sean and um, Sherry and Ellen and Robert Carlock and, and Bucky and all these people that I felt very sort of out of my element and um, very kind of intimidated. But it was a really good experience. And, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways that being on a legendary disaster teaches you more than being on something really successful because it was always hard. It was everything about it was hard. It was hard to... I think we realized on that show very quickly that the, they, they've gotten these really good people in the cast that were really good single camera en- energy people, you know, but that to learn like Matt was so good as a multicam actor. and I think he's probably exhibit A in somebody that can learn all the moves and become like better and better and better. He was such a pro, but that there was really no one else on that show that could handle that weird multi-camera thing where you hold us like Drake Matteo, emmy winning actress great but didn't feel comfortable owning the stage in a multi-cam and so he had to be in every scene he had to be in he had to come in if they were doing a sea runner he had to have the blow to it like he'd be <laughs> on the other side of town like robert carlock used to say that the that the logo for that show or like the the sign for joey should be that daffy duck thing with daffy ducks going <sighs> because that was just Matt having to go do the A story, the B story and the C runner and so i mean it was a great education in a lot of things that you shouldn't do and a lot of things but but also like the thing i remember a lot about it was that at the end you know we were getting just dumped on just so just shit on all the time and why why didn't they think to hire writers and like who are the garbage people that write the show and then literally the next year the core of the 30 Rock staff was from Joey. I mean, it was like Robert Carlock, Matt Hubbard, uh, John Pollock, Finkel and Bear. All these guys went to go work on 30 Rock. And everybody was like, finally, NBC got some writers on a show. It's like, you know, it's lightning in a bottle. It's like you can have the best writers in the world. And if the show isn't working,
0: good luck, you know? Yeah, I mean, that show had an incredible staff. I mean, you know, it did feel like there were certain structural obstacles to that to that show, working. Um, okay, so then there's a bunch of you know, let's, let's see. So there's notes from The Underbelly, Perfect Couples, Whitney, Ben and Kate. Yeah, so a lot of, lot of one and uh, done. Yeah, but you're moving up every year, I assume, and getting you know at this point you, you're getting sort of more responsibility and starting to run rooms and things like that. At what point mm-hmm. do, do you get to start to do more kind of supervisory showrunner kind of duties?
2: I mean, I think that I was doing when I was on Whitney, I was kind of taking more responsibility. And then when I was on um, Ben and Kate, we had a sort of battlefield promotion situation where the showrunners that had been sort of selected from that list that you give. a the, the person who created that show, Dana Fox, hadn't worked in TV. So they kind of assigned her showrunners that I don't know that it was ever like a great marriage, like really, really good, funny guys Uh that were running the show, but it just, there was all the weirdness of a new show and these two guys that she sort of didn't really jibe with. And so there was a replace, there was a, there was a change made. And so the two, only other two upper level people on that show were me and a guy named Dave Feeney. And we didn't, we hadn't even worked in many rooms together because we'd always get split because we were like two of the upper level guys. And so then, um, but we ended up running the show together and got along great and ended up actually writing movies together after that. But that was my first time, sort of running a show, and then I, um, I kind of co-ran Undateable, the first season of that show with Bill Lawrence, which is really not running a show. It's really just being the person that Bill can like say no to all the time, <laughs> because because you know that's sort of what, um, that sort of that process in that room. But but Bill was. Um, worked with Bill and Adam Steckel on that show and we sort of we, we were sort of three showrunners but really Bill's going to, you know, he's Bill Lawrence, he's going to run the show but that was a cool experience and um, and then honestly like the best thing that ever happened to me was you do that for so many years and you you kind of like begin to convince yourself that you have to fix every problem and that that can be a thing that I think makes you like Stick, be a dog with a bone about stuff sometimes you think only I know I know what's right and like you kind of forget the comedy is subjective and you sort of think like no there's a dogmatic way the right way to do this scene and then I was supposed to do a show after Undateable um, called Mission Control that was really exciting that was like a single camera show that took place at NASA and the race to the moon and Kristen Ritter was in it it was, supposed to, it was really cool and it just never happened it got pushed and then It never got made. And so I ended up taking a part-time job on a show where I worked three days a week. And it was like the greatest thing ever, because I realized that I would leave and like shit would get done. And I was like, they don't need you. Like be helpful, move the ball forward every day, but don't think that like, you have to be the one that solves their problem. And that was actually a really good thing for me to learn. And I did that for a couple of years. And then on two different shows I did part-time. And then I worked on Workaholics, which was really fun for two years. And then um, the reboot of Will & Grace
0: for all three years. And Workaholics, like, what was your role on Workaholics? I was an
2: EP, and uh, but very overqualified because I got there, I was there the last two seasons. I kind of knew ahead of time it was going to be at two years and only two years gigs. They, they knew they were wrapping it up. And uh, they just, they were such a well-oiled machine that, like, story breaking and writing. Sure. But like, once you were done with that eight weeks, they were just like, yeah, we'll figure it out on set. Like if you would have a table read and I would come after the table read, I'd be like, well, obviously, you know, the A story kind of sags and they'd be like, it's going to be fine. We're going to figure it out. (laughs) Like they would, they just knew how to do their, their show so well that, um, most of production was like being in your office, waiting for the phone to ring if they needed an alt, which would happen twice a week or something. So it was a lot of like pre-production was, was, the the real work and then kind of like Sunny does that too I think Sunny, they have a writing staff for pre-production and then like two people like a skeleton crew after that because they just they know what they're they know what they're doing you know
0: can we talk about uh the board of band phrases yes from (laughs) from workaholics which is something that I associate with you maybe because I don't know if you instigated it or you tweeted tweeted it out um, so for those who don't know, they, you know, on the workaholic stuff, they had this whiteboard and on it was, it was just all of these cliches, um, clams, which is what we right. comedy writers call cliches of just things that, you know, you can't say, you know, I just threw up a little and uh, checked well. right. yeah, you know, that's not a thing. Um, right. Don't slam the door. Um, so did, was, was that something that was already like up and running when you got there?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was, I think, I think maybe there was two boards and I think the first board was almost full when I got there. And the second board might've, might've been completely over the two years I was there. So I, I mean, I contributed maybe a dozen of those things, but most of it was already there, but it was like when the show wrapped, it was like, what are we going to do with this? And I thought like, that's a good thing for just a a public service (laughs) to writers everywhere. Like don't use these anymore. But the thing that's so funny is having been in both worlds that And I'm sure you've noticed this all the time that like you're in a room and if you're in a room full of like responsible comedy writers and you pitch something like he's right behind me, isn't he? Like you'll get shamed for it as you should and it won't go in the script. And then you go to a movie theater and you see a trailer for like a new studio comedy and that will be every every joke will be off that board and people will howl in the audience. (laughs) Like there's no rules in movies. It's like the more familiar, the better, you know. So you're like, what are we trying so hard for? But.
0: I know I struggle with that all the time, like policing these cliche, cliche things, you know. Right. And then, you know, even I remember watching the uh, Grey's Anatomy pilot, and I was like, "Oh, she sleeps with the guy, and of course, yeah, of course, that guy's going to end up being her boss at the new job, and of course, it right. was." And even at that time, it's just like that is so clammy, and yet, twenty seasons later, you know, and, and everyone yeah. loves everyone loves these things, right? That they, they love them because because of their familiarity. I don't think most people when they hear you know, did I just say that out loud, are just wanting to kill themselves the way we are as comedy writers?
2: It's a weird self placing thing that maybe we only, are the only ones that care about. But I had a friend who was an actor who he had a weird kind of sweet spot where he found he was like the funny guy in a really, really serious show all the time. So he'd always be like the guy on like, he'd be like the guy with the laptop on the team that was trying to like, you know, solve the crime who always said like, my mom said I should have gone to dental school. And it would be like, that's a huge laugh on a one hour, you know? And like, when you talk to like, Palestine Canali, they went and they worked for like on a show that was a kind of dramedy. And they would pitch a line that had a joke in it. And people would be like, you, you, you just pitch, you just came up with that. Like, it was like a magic trick that like, outside of our weird little world of comedy writers, like the idea of pitching a non-clam and having it right, you know, right there is people are like, wow that's so cool you know
0: what's your understanding of the origin of that of the word clam
2: I mean I've probably heard all the same stories that you did I think that like I've heard everything from it was like a bad note in like in like a uh, in music like when you hit a clam like you hit the thing wrong I've heard it was because uh the joke people always pitched for when you were sick was you had a bad clam like that was like that was a clam, to always say that your food poisoning was from a bad clam, so it became like how jump the shark means what it means now. I've also heard that Michael Patrick King has taken credit for it, but I have no way of verifying if that's true or not.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious. You know, everyone's got different... Uh, I've heard all, heard? I've heard yeah. all of the exact same things you just mentioned, and I don't know yeah. if we'll ever know the real answer, but I'm just always so curious about that one. Um, so... I'm- I was gonna say I'm
2: working with some younger writers now, and it's so like when you have to explain a, the etymology of a room phrase, they sound so dumb. You know, like have you ever heard Sonny, uh, uh, a Bono? It's like a, or a box canyon or a sunny Bono. I, I guess I've heard
0: box Canyon. but it, it's, it's well, like it's,
2: a joke. It's like an area in a script that no matter what you put in there, it fails. And I guess the sunny Bono of it is because there was like where the hamburger Hamlet used to be on Sunset Strip. There was a sunny Bono's restaurant and and it once it closed everything that went in that spot failed. But you sound a thousand and and years old. Somebody, uh, Sonny Bono had a thing and you know, blah blah blah. But.
0: And then you're having to explain who Sonny Bono was and <laughs> what probably. hamburger Hamlet was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know. But I, I kinda love all those old Me show too. busy things. But I think we're from a I don't you know, I don't know if the younger writers are as into the sort of history of of this this kind of stuff. I don't think I, I care at all. No, because they also didn't, you know, we both came up with old timers, you know, like yes. the guys, you know, there's a great story. I'm sure you've heard that. Can the floor be wet? Do oh, you know yeah. That one? The index cards. Right. The guy with the index cards. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's just these legends that, but I don't know if we're not passing them on, then they're just going to die. So I think it's yeah, part it's of our job is yeah. to sound 100 years old.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Ritual. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms your body can actually use. What won't you find? Sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. Don't want them. Won't find them here. Ritual has been real helpful to me. I feel good every day. I've been taking it for about six months, and I can't get enough. Give me that Ritual. You'll always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. Now available for women, men, and teens, these multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping, always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime, and if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they'll refund your first order. So get on the Ritual train. You won't be sorry. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering Dead Pilot Society listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash deadpilots to start your ritual today.
0: Did you ever pull into the driveway after a trip to the grocery store only to realize you forgot that one key ingredient for dinner? Well, now you have options. You can get the groceries you need or a backup meal from your favorite local restaurant delivered with DoorDash. Now, everyone knows that DoorDash has restaurants, but you can now get groceries and other essential items from them too. So get drinks, snacks, and other household items in under an hour. With over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Popeye's, Chipotle, Cheesecake Factory. Ordering is easy, and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code Dead Pilots. That's 25% off, up to a $10 value, and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code DEADPILOTS. One more time, don't forget, that's code DEADPILOTS for 25% off your first order with DoorDash As the faith would say, subject to change, terms apply.
1: We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forged paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek, what else? Fortune and glory. Dive into the Aether Sea, the latest campaign from the Adventure Zone, every other Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Let's talk about fun for the whole family. I love the story that you told in that little interview before we started about your parks and rec. Uh, meeting and that this came yeah. out of that. I, I love the um, the sort of a studentness of the fact that you were prepared with the. What if they ask me what should this show be? I want to yes. have an answer, which is kind of great. Like I'm wondering. I can't decide what lesson a, a writer should take from that story. I think it's great that you were prepared for the very unlikely event that they were going to ask you <laughs> to come sure, up like, with it, to come up with the concept of the show for them.
2: It's either very admirable or very obnoxious, you know? I mean, it might just be, I, I, I mean, really just to reiterate so I don't sound like a complete jackass, it was really based in feeling like I had really failed in a previous interview with, with Greg Daniels and like not having had a lot of those experiences where i felt like i just i just wasn't ready and so i was over prepared but i guess i mean to me the lesson is just like if you nothing is wasted you know i mean if you have something that you worked on and you can repurpose it then there's so few ideas that you respond to i always sort of feel like too like as a general rule as a writer you know, even if this isn't really applicable applicable to this because it was something I could use in the thing I normally do, but I always end up writing weird stuff out of genre because I feel like if any idea sticks with you for longer than a few months, you should write it. Because most ideas that you have, they sound really good, you know, and that because you need it or like in sitcoms, you'll, you'll define success by the weird random bullseye that's been given to you of like, we need a joke that's about chickens, but also political. And then you come up with something and you're like, I did it and you're like, but is that worth anything outside of this weird exercise? No, but like to me, if you have an idea of any kind and you think about it three months, six months, a year later, it's probably something worth writing. And that was, that was an example of that where like, It wasn't just, oh, I have this thing. It was, I came up with this for this dumb reason, but then I kept on thinking about it and thinking like, oh, I actually kind of wish I would have had the opportunity to write this show. And then you're like, well, you do. You can go pitch that show, you know. So I guess that's the weird lesson to me is if something lingers in your brain, there's so many disposable ideas that don't have a shelf life that it's probably a good sign to you that, like, there's something there to use,
0: you know. And that's great. So you've done that with, like – things outside of the half hour world yeah i
2: mean honestly that's that's like you know there's a lot of times like with people who are just getting started ask me for advice i'll give them one set of things but when i talk to people who are like my age who've been doing it for a long time and are dealing with those kind of questions of like how do i keep on doing this how do i do another sitcom and like we all burn out and we all feel like There's nothing new under the sun that I always try to be writing something where I have no idea what I'm doing, because I think then you attack it with the kind of like, you know, energy of a 25 year old who doesn't know the rules. Because I I, honestly, I find like doing sitcoms now, the hardest thing for me is to not self censor and self edit and know the notes in advance and write something that is already kind of middled because you're so hearing the voice of the hypothetical network executive or that whatever and saying no they won't let me do this because of this or that'll be too expensive or i need to have it be four sets or whatever that like for me to write like i wrote a biopic of waylon jennings because i'm a huge fan of his and i'm like i have no idea how to do that but that's good because i'll just i won't know the mistakes i'm making and i'll just write from the heart and like um that's just kind of what i like to do is just write stuff. I, I just wrote a movie that was you know like a kind of magnolia style not really comedy at all with eight different you know characters and three different timelines and all that and it was really hard but like it makes you feel like you're writing and not just like building a building a product that you think will tick the right boxes which happens a lot I think with sitcoms you've been doing it for 20 years or whatever
0: I love this so much I think this is just like incredibly wise and inspiring um and it's so it's just really smart and uh relate to it completely um So, okay. So you, you, you had this, you had this idea for this meeting and then how much longer after that did you go out and, and pitch this family business idea?
2: I I think, I mean, I'm trying to remember what the way I got in with 20th, but I went into 20th and pitched it to them and they were, uh, they were into it. And I think that, you know, similar to the story I told about the movie that I wrote being like selling because it had a Madonna title in it. I, I remember I went in to pitch it and, uh, the executive at the time was this very enthusiastic person. And I got through, like, the first sentence. Like, I just have an area. I'm like, here's the area. And it's this family-run toy business. And he was like, oh, that's so great. I can already see the marketing thing. We're going to, you know, we'll do a thing. We'll send out, like, dolls. So each character will be a doll, and we'll send it to all the network, all the people who cover. And, like, that's going to be great. And uh, and and I was like, "I don't, I don't even know what the show is yet. But he was already, like... I see how we can market it if it ever becomes a show is that we'll we'll send out dolls of the characters to the press. (laughs) And that's, I think that's why they were into it. And then I, uh, I went and pitched, I developed it with them and then pitched it to the networks and then Fox, everybody else said no, but Fox bought it in the room. And then I found out, I think, I think at the end of the day, um, they had two other family run business shows that they did pick up that year. And I think that was one of the reasons I didn't get picked up. One of them was Bob's Burgers, which you know is still <laughs> s- still doing it. But um, but I think they were, that's the weirdest thing about Pilots Man is that like it may very well be that they had had a meeting where they said, let's do a family run business this year because you just never know. Like you end up getting, I'm going through that now. Like y- y- you sell a show that has a one line log line and then you spend six months or four months or whatever, like making it as good as you can and doing all the notes and thinking about this thinking about that. But I sort of feel like the way it gets decided is that at the network on the week when they decide it, they just put these little cards on the board and they say like family run business, single ca- camera comedy. And then they go, well that could go like, it gets reduced back to the original thing. And it's kind of like what you did doesn't matter. Like I went through this process and, and it couldn't have been better. if It was like, they were so happy all the time with it and the notes were so minimal and you sort of think, well, they like it. They're going to buy it. They're going to make it. And then they're like, no, your little card didn't fit on the schedule with, you know, what we needed to lead into dance, whatever show they had on, you know, Joe Millionaire or whatever it was like, you just don't know like what they're trying to, what their predetermined holes are they're trying to fill. And it's hard to know if like you have a chance, you know, because sometimes it feels like I never had a chance because they were never going to, they were never gonna use buy a show with this premise, even. Like the premise that they knew about four months ago is what killed it, not the script. If that makes
0: sense. Oh, it makes total sense. And yet it's hard it still doesn't prevent you from obsessing over the blow of a scene, yeah. like or this little moment in the cold open, and it's just the, the minutia that matter to you as a writer, even though part of your brain knows like I'm gonna be reduced down to family run business single yeah. cam. No one cares about this joke at all. Yeah, that's um, crazy. But at what point did toys uh, was that there from the beginning? Were you thinking that that was the business from the get go?
2: I think that was in, I think that was part of the thing with um, when I when I had it in mind for Greg and uh, and Mike when I went into that that whatever turned into Parks and Rec whenever the, when they were just doing the Office spinoff. Um, and I think I just like the idea of um, high stakes silly thing, you know, of like the thing, like having funny backdrop. And I like the set. I like the idea of a big set full of like a giant Michigan Avenue. I went to school in Chicago. So like, I love those stores and like a big picture window with like all those fun toys and all that just felt like visually cool and fun to argue over dumb shit like that, especially kids that were, I mean, siblings to be literally fighting over toys with their dads felt fun.
0: And, and, Don't take this in the wrong way. Do you think about big at that point? Does it pop into your head? And then how do you deal with that thought popped into your head?
2: It probably did. And I probably convinced myself that was a good thing, but maybe it was a bad thing. I don't know.
0: No, I'm only asking because I know how my brain would work. You know, and the fact is, I saw like it doesn't matter that that's also the business at big. That's another one of these things. No one cares. It's still a really great setting. I could just see myself like, oh, maybe toys. And I'd be like, "Mm, but that's from big. And, like, wrongfully dismissing it. So I'm really asking because I think it's, like, you – it was the right call to just, you know, even if you thought of that, be like, it doesn't matter. There's no – nothing's wholly original. You're not going to come up with some business that hasn't been in something.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember if I I had that thought or not. But I probably thought, well, it hasn't been a TV show yet, so it's okay, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. Because it's just – it's easy to understand. It's fun. It's visual. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just – it actually is a great – business for this family. Um, Have you, when watching Succession, which I assume you've watched, have you thought, has it made you think back to to this show at all? Because there's like funny parallels between this show and Succession.
2: It's funny, you know, I've watched, weirdly, I'm like the only person that didn't get super into Succession. I watched like the first several and, and even though I usually balk at this as being a requirement to liking the show, I just so didn't like the characters that I didn't stick with it. And I also got really annoyed at the like overwritten, like alpha business talk of the, like, I'm going to fuck you so hard. You're going to shit gold coins and all that kind of stuff <laughs> where I'm like, okay, calm down. Like, but, uh, but yeah, it did occur to me that I was like, Oh, this is, this is the, the better way to do maybe a family run show is to have it be, have it be King Lear or something is, you know, it's pretty good. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when I was doing the research for this pitch, I remember finding some statistic, I think it's in the script, that something like 80% of all businesses in America are on some level a family-run business. I mean, it is such like, even like these giant corporations, even like, you know, whatever, uh, Walmart or something, I mean, they're all, they all have family stuff in them. And I, and I think it is a kind of weirdly underserved thing. I mean, I guess the truth is, as, as you know, like a work Based sitcom is so rarely about the work, um, but that felt even more reason than like make them related. Make them, you know, you want to have. It's all going to be about the personal relationships anyway. So it's better. It's it's if you're going to do something, that's about a fake business, and you don't want to rely on fake business stakes. Um, there better be something compelling between the people and the families. to sure do that, you know.
0: Yeah. No. And it, and it, it helps so much with the dynamics, you know, that they aren't just about work. Right. The work is the substance that they can be talking about but obviously there's very deep-seated yeah. things going on i'm and sure
2: every every i mean you've had this same experience i'm sure every time you go onto a um an office sitcom the first week the showrunner is talking about how like we want it to be like taxi or like cheers where like you fu- you make this like Erzat's family among your co-workers and it's like or they could just be family you know, yeah. <laughs> that could already just be family, and then we don't have to pretend that they're a fake family. They could just be an actual family that work together. But um, you know, you always—that's always the goal—is that you think it's going to be one of those great shows like that or *Marry Time* or you know, where it's like they're a family.
0: But um, it's hard to do, for sure. Yeah, but my—I think my my favorite move in this pilot is when you bring in you know, that, that Harvey has hired all these other family members, that, right. that you get Frank and Dia, you know, those characters are so great, and that you have kind of this, like, extended family dinner kind of thing with everyone talking over each other, and these people that are right. really useless, um, that was just, it's such a fun escal- it's such a fun moment. Um, that would be me, island. too, that,
2: that's me thinking, how would I fuck up a family-run business, I would feel guilty and I would give jobs to everybody that needed it. And that's, I think that's gotta be, that's gotta be hard. You know, I mean, it's hard enough not to just like to deal with like giving your friends jobs on a show, but to like run a business and like, uh, you know, uncle Gary, he's got a, he's got a injured leg. He could sure use some money. You know, like I'm such a sucker for that stuff.
0: Yeah. It's just, you know, Harvey's just an interesting character cause he is, he's the patriarch. Um, but he's sweet. You know, he's such a softie at yeah. heart.
2: I originally, think, when I wrote it, I think uh, my dream was that it was going to be um, Alan Arkin. But that was a while ago. But that I love that someone who's that kind of gruff, but you believe is, you know, like in Little Miss Sunshine, where there's this, you know, there's a, uh, a very warm, warm person. But Bruce was great. He was so funny.
0: Yeah, no, he was great. And just you know, I feel like all of these characters are so... <laughs> clear you know the kids roles are 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 so clear um you know how do you think about you know max who's the you know the sort of prodigal son who comes back into the family uh who's a little bit that sort of like jason bateman and arrested development kind of character right he's he's Mm this he's the most sane um of of all of them uh, yeah, I think
2: I think to a fault when I heard it out loud. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things for me about listening to it. Um, and Andrew was great. I just think I didn't make him funny, and I think that's enough. And I think that's you know, it's like it's like why you can't like make a movie out of The Great Gatsby because the lead, the sane one, is so it's so easy to make that person boring compared to the big wild. Car- I mean, we, I mean, and you learn that lesson over and over and over again in your career. That like the sane one in the middle of the tornado, you're like, okay, well, I'm not laughing at him just being <laughs> sane, you know, like being, being the, the, in the eye of the hurricane, it's like funny that things happen around him, but I hope I've gotten better at that since then. But that, that was my, I mean, i like, again, I think I've learned that lesson so many times when you, when you have a a main character who isn't comically fucked up, it's, they, you struggle to make them funny, you know? You're always wanting like, oh, get back to the other funny, get back to Donnie. Donnie's funny, you know?
0: Yeah, it, it, we've all done it. We've all been there and written that character. And and I think, in a way, Jason Bateman doing it so well and Arrested, like, made made the problem worse because it made it feel like, oh, it's possible. <laughs> like, you know, right. you and could I, do and it. <laughs> and
2: I think we all, and I think also the thing that's that's kind of, part of the problem and also part of the thing that's that's annoying about it is that you base that character on yourself usually and you're like (laughs) what would I do and then you're like oh I'm fucking boring I'm not funny (laughs) I wrote this character that's me and he's getting not nearly as much laughs as the other people that I invented you know um I mean you put a little bit of yourself in everybody but it's always that like oh what would I say well maybe think a little better because it's not it's not coming across as being hilarious you
0: know I know it's it just came up on this thing I'm writing with someone and I was like but this is what I and he's like you would be a terrible you know, sitcom character and I was just like right. It's, you're right you're right I would I be know, like I know. It can't, so you know you have these instincts and they're they're not good you yeah. can't, can't write yourself um, I so, think that, like, that,
2: the, the, another thing that I uh, that I think I, I've learned better or I've done a better job of internalizing in later on in my career is that you don't have to, when you want to make a character who is unlikable or needy or vain, you can just base them on yourself and you don't have to twist it that much. That like, I always feel like when I write characters who are petty or, you know, all those kind of things, I comment on them as if I don't deeply understand all of those things. I think to understand that like, you can base a completely unlikable character on yourself without much adjustment is a hard pill to swallow, but like really important that, you know, it's really easy to be the sort of like judgmental God of like, look at this character who is so, you know, insecure. It's like, no, I'm, I'm equally insecure, if not more. and I could just write the truth of me, but that's painful to do sometimes, you know, but I think that's, that's probably helpful when you read basically a character in yourself
0: is to be like, uh,
2: you're being pretty nice to yourself here. If you think that's who you are, Mr. No flaws, you know? Yeah. We,
0: we all have these aspects and it's, it is yeah. like listening to those, those terrible, those selfish yeah. or narcissistic thoughts that we all have and just putting yeah. those on the page and it, owning yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, um, I I just love hearing the, you know, because you've read how many approximately how many pilots have you sold in your career? I
2: sold, I think like six or something. I think I've done, I think I've sold one to the, the net, the four networks and then USA, um, CBS. And then I did like a little web pilot or something that I wrote and directed, but, um, that was like a very small micro budget thing, but I think like half a dozen. Yeah.
0: Okay. um, And do you feel like there are lessons to be learned from, from each of them or.
2: I mean, sure. I mean, I think that like, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting is when, when they get passed on, you think it was so good. I, I, I feel like you really feel like you have no way to see the forest for the trees. And you sort of get caught up in like, again, that sort of, that that sort of moving bullseye of like for what it is. It's like when you go work on a bad show, you know, and you can't go to work every day and think, oh, this sucks. this sucks. You have this sliding scale where you say, you know, in parentheses for the shitty show that we're doing. That was a really good one, you know. And so you just sort of judge it based on these kind of artificial criteria. And so I think it's interesting with time to go back and go, should that have been thought? You know, like at the time you think, Oh, the world is so unjust and I can't believe they picked up the show with the with a monkey in it over my show, um, which happened to me. You know, I had a show where the they, they picked up a show that had a had a monkey that tested very highly and I thought, Oh my god, the world is so unfair and then like a couple of years later I'm like, That show wasn't that great that I wrote, you know? Like, um, there are shows that you I think it goes back to the thing I was saying before, if five years later you read it and you think, Oh, that's too bad, then maybe it was, you know that's instructive in itself to say, "Oh, OK, I, what I thought was good was actually good on its face, not good for the show that I was trying to do. And that's 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 interesting. And, you know, and and looking back, especially with a critical eye and saying, oh, this this should have been different. I, cu- I couldn't see it at the time because I was so dead set on this this one scene. And all those lessons that writers learn over and over again, you know, did you fall in love with the scene? Did you bend the story because you thought this was the funny thing? Did you, were you blind to something because it was based in something that really happened to you, which isn't necessarily funny. I think you can always learn from the failures for sure. Right. I mean, that's like, but it sort of starts with, you have to kind of get past the, um, the world is unjust and doesn't recognize my greatness. <laughs> you know, that's the <laughs> first the first thing that you feel like when you get that horrible call, is uh, network TV, man. They'll never understand. They'll never (laughs) understand someone like me. I I guess I'm just not shitty enough to get a network show on the air. All those self-protective things that you do. But, um, you know, I mean, like the thing I said about Joey, I learned a lot more about writing TV from a show that was, by all accounts, a failure than I did on, you know, a show like Workaholics, which was running like a fine-tuned engine by the time I got there and didn't really need me there. I didn't, I mean, I learned from those guys And, and I think I became, you know, I had a broader set of tools from working for them, but I don't think I learned that much about myself because, or the process, but when things go bad, it's always instructive, I think, you know, you just, but you have to get past that, that little wounded period, which can be a long wounded period. It's not always little, but, but I think when you get past that, that poor me, um, it's always good to go back and go what should I have done? You know, like the thing I'm saying about max. I mean, I think if I was going to write that pilot again, I would make sure that that was a really, really funny part. And you know, that wasn't just reactive and that's, I wish I could learn that lesson once and not 485 times. But.
0: <laughs> yeah. I know. It, it, Cause you, you get, you get in the writer's room on this show and everyone's going to be pitching Donnie jokes, right? Yeah, and You're exactly, just like, exactly. okay, exactly. you, you, you want to show, and no one ever really achieves this, where it's like, right. oh, we want to pitch jokes for every character. No, there's right. always going to be those characters where it's a little bit easier and you're going to sure. gravitate towards them. Um, but, you know, Donnie with the Phil Jackson and all that motivation, you know, right. he, he's so, and Charlie Coons, who played him so perfectly, it's just like, okay, yeah. that, that character great. is just like, you know, yeah. gold. Um, right but it's a little bit easier because his flaws a little bit, you know, more obvious and more extreme. um, So can you talk a little bit about the the latest pilot that you're waiting to hear about? Yeah, I wrote a
2: pilot that is um, it's called AOK. And it's basically like in the time right before AOL emerged as the company that got everybody online in like 1991. It's a startup of uh, young idealistic people in an office who are trying to become that company. So it's sort of a space race to become the company that will ultimately be AOL, but they're called AOK. So it's like the Betamax of the Internet service War, uh, Service wars. Um, and it's really a, you know, obviously like all those shows, it's a show about the lives and loves of these characters falling in and out of love with each other and fighting and getting, making up. But it's also, I hope, a kind of opportunity to be subversive um, as a lens on today because it's these people talking about what they want the Internet to be and what they want. I think that's at the core of so much of what's going on right now is what's happened with the explosion of the Internet and social media and and the, you know, the way we silo news and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted I think that's when you go and you pitch stuff that takes place in the present that even touches that stuff people get very allergic to it because they're like oh we're going to turn off half of america and we're going to sound Mm -hmm. preachy so i think that like to me i was approached um about the idea of doing a 90s sitcom a sort of that 90s show type thing uh and i was like ah i would really want a reason why it had to be in the 90s and what would be really necessary about that and i really like the idea of Um, And I'd I'd sold another show to ABC that didn't work out because of legal reasons, because it was a format, but that was sort of in the same that was in the 90s. And I really liked the idea of, you know, like my I'm sure, you know, this because you're you get the checks. But like my daughter has seen every episode of Friends eight times, you know, it's like everybody her age knows that show by heart. And I think uh, one of the things that she really responds to about it is the nostalgia of like, oh, look at how it was for people to meet and fall in love without a phone. Um, and that they're watching those stories and like even just to see six people sitting on a couch, looking at each other in the face and talking to each other, drinking coffee, like doesn't happen. You know, like I think that that there's something really interesting to that. And on top of that, just the kind of satire of like in the future, the Internet will make it so that everybody has access to all the knowledge in the world. There won't be un- there won't be, you know, uninformed people. It'll be like this utopia, this thing that we all kind of thought might happen. So uh, that's that's basically what the show is. It's a office. Show set in the '90s, but with a with a vehicle to kind of satirize where we are today. It sounds great. Um, it's a multicam, so.
0: And yeah, I that instinct right now to only, I feel it's very strong to only want to write period because yeah. of phones because yeah. you know you know the show I'm writing has kids and teenagers and it's just like well there I have 14 year old twins I know their world is completely mediated through phones and yeah. it's not visually interesting and it's not, it, it just creates all these problems for, for, for writing. And so you want to write things where it's not all about phones. It's not, not everything. Yeah. Um, if that's not the, if you're not writing euphoria or something that is like <laughs> right. very much like, Oh, this is the shocking thing about what it's like, like, you know, it, Yeah, whenever you
2: write, like when I've written movies that are like, um, you know, that are like, high stakes or people are being chased or whatever, like you always have to like, how, how are they going to lose their phone? Yeah. Because if they have a phone, the show, the movie's over, you know? So like, you're like the phone runs out of it. They, it flies out the window. It's like, that's almost a trope now too. Of like, how do they, not have access to a phone. Right.
0: How do they lose signal? How do they, yeah, right. because you got to get rid of these, this anti-drama thing that, that creates We so maybe should just problems. get rid
2: of them anyway. We maybe should just throw them all in the ocean. But.
0: It's true. Although I will say, you know, you are one of the most consistently funny people on Twitter. I'm just like, a, oh, that's nice. I'm a Twitter lurker. I never post, you know, I think, but I always uh, like seeing what, what you have to say. I always kind of admire that you're able to, to do that.
2: I like, I like Twitter because it's the closest thing I have to when I used to do stand-up, of like getting a little thing. But I also think that like as a person who's getting old in a, a younger person's world, I like that it forces me to, um, I have that fear that I'm going to start being a writer that doesn't know how to be funny anymore. That I'm too old to write jokes. And so like it's a good thing to be, keep in training or something. I don't know. It's like doing like uh, sit ups or something, like exercise the muscle because otherwise I'm going to be the guy with the file, the, the the index cards asking if the floor could
0: be wet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, how's it been on this new, uh, on reboot, on this new show that you're doing? You mean like vis a vis young versus old? Yeah.
2: I mean, it's the thing. I mean, there's definitely, it's also weird because it's, it's on Zoom and, you know, but like there is, uh, you know, a definite separation between the three of us who are older and the rest of the younger people. And like, you know, you pitch, you're always saying like, Oh, it's like that great episode of Ch-. when they don't even know what that is. You're like, and I'm like two generations away, you know, because now when it's people who are 25, I'm 50, you know, like that completely different upbringing. Um, but uh, I mean, for the most part, I think it's, I think it's fine, but it, you know, College, I was the oldest person in the room by, like, eight years. And then I went to Will & Grace. was great because I was, like, the young buck. <laughs> it was, like, everyone <laughs> on that show was older than me. So that was kind of nice. But, um, yeah, it's easy to feel insecure about being old in a room full of funny people, for
0: sure. Which is too bad because it's – there's a lot of accumulated skills and knowledge, yeah. you know, and, and breaking stories, which I think no one comes into – a writer's room knowing how to break a story yeah um, it's like you have to learn that you have to learn how to sort of open the door that's going to like get you to the next interesting beat that's going to turn a notion into a story and yeah um so you know the, the ageism whatever, when it comes to that is kind of foolish because it's just like yeah people could you know lots of people can pitch jokes but boy like you know having that interesting turn in a plot that mm-hmm. makes the story work is something like doing it a lot and if you're only doing 8 or 10 episodes in a the season then that's your you know work for a year, year and a half. You know, you learn yeah. more slowly than we did doing 22, 24, 25 episodes a season. I mean, yeah, you guys
2: you guys you must have done 24 as often as you did 22, right on friends? Oh, I mean, you must yeah. have done
0: Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Plus those stupid supersized episodes which were really mistaken. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm so glad that I got you on the show, and uh, and it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. I really, I'm still thinking about what John said about just doing something where you don't know what you're doing, just trying it. I've actually, I've been directing this documentary, and it's exactly that. I just started doing something I didn't know anything about doing it's been great i want to do more of those things it was really great to hear him lay it out that way Uh, i hope you you got a lot from that interview dead pilot society is produced by me and my co-producer ben blacker and our associate producer noah finling and it is edited by jordan katz our theme song is by ted leo tell a friend about us just do it you know someone you're listening to this you're listening to this part of this. Surely you like the show, and you know someone else who might like it. Tell them about it. Leave us a review wherever on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. It really helps. Uh, follow us on social media to find out all the latest. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening.
1: MaximumFun.org.
0: Comedy and culture.
1: Artist-owned, audience-supported.